Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business and the humans in it. I'm your host Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Lee Munich Jr who was a senior fellow and also directed the state and local policy program at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota for 25 years. His expertise are in transportation planning, urban and regional planning, economic development, local government and infrastructure finance, amongst many other things. He received a bachelor's degree in economics from Georgetown University, and has done postgraduate work in economics and computer science at the University of Minnesota. I was introduced to Lee after our producer Jonathan shared an opinion piece from the Star Tribune with me. The title of the piece is Telework's Moment of True Arrival is Bound to Make Ripples in Minnesota, and we'll link to that from the webpage of this episode. I thought that Lee would be an interesting guest to have, given our recent episodes about working from home during the pandemic, and since we've been doing it for so many years. The article in question talks about how the pandemic is affecting our working environment, and the riffle effect it is having, and also might have, on society. Lee, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad we could get our technical difficulties all sorted out. <laughs> <laughs> we had them, yes. Yes, we do. Working from home is not uh, not always as simple as uh, as you might hope. That's right. That's right. Well, how are you doing? How is your family? I hope everything's going well for you. Uh, we're doing well. We're doing well. Uh, so um, my wife and I live in a condo uh, near the river in Minneapolis, and uh, we've been dealing with, uh, of course, staying at home. Uh, of course, we had our curfew here because of the incident last week, um, but uh, but we're doing fine. Thank you. Good, good. Yes, the curfew is on still tonight. So um, yes, yes, boy, that's a serious situation. Our hearts go out to everyone that's affected. And living in Minneapolis, it's um, kind of the epicenter of it all right now. It is. It is. Well, in the intro, I uh, went through an impressive list of credentials that you have. You've concerned yourself with kind of the greater good and public policy for your whole life, and your training's been in economics and in computer science. I wanted to ask you how you got started thinking about these things so broadly. Well, I've always been interested in emerging policy issues uh, and how industries work, too. Uh, I was kind of a I was always a fan of movies, and I always was interested in how the movie industry evolved. Uh, you know, as I worked in different roles, I I studied economic development and uh, and became um, interested in how industries worked as a whole. And so we've studied industry clusters in Minnesota uh, and why certain certain businesses types of businesses are here and why certain types of workers are here. As well as, um, you know, more recently when I joined the Humphrey School, got more involved in transportation policy and how that ties in with economic development. So, so I've had a, you know, a career where I've done research uh, and worked on public policy issues uh, in a number of different organizations and, 
and uh, as you mentioned, 25 years at the Humphrey School. You know, it's taken me into a number of different policy areas, economic development, transportation policy, um, you know, gotten involved in uh, fiscal policy and financing. Uh, and uh, uh, most of that's been focused at the state and local level. Uh, I was on the city council for a couple of years back in the 1970s as well, so I've had a, an opportunity to kind of work as a, uh, you know, with with constituents and, and kind of dealing with how they see these issues. So I turned 75 yesterday. Happy so I've birthday. Had a, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we had a big uh, family celebration on Zoom on Sunday. Wonderful. That was fun. Uh, relative, my, my kids in Louisville and San Francisco and Big Lake, Minneapolis were all there with grandkids. So. So that uh, that was fun. We were planning a picnic at uh, Minnehaha Park, but uh, that was that went by the wayside when we had to stay at home and nobody could travel. So, uh, did they all sing Happy Birthday to you? They did. Although, if you're familiar with how Zoom works, uh, it sounds like <laughs> a drunken group singing. Uh, I also sing in a choir, church choir, and we've had to kind of. We get together for rehearsals, but we can't. You can't all do it at the same time no. because of the of the time lags. You can't uh, you can't synchronize. Uh, so uh, there are ways that you can record each individually and combine it into a group. But anyway, so they did sing Happy Birthday. Well, congratulations! Three quarters of a century. That's um, that's a quite a feat. Well, it's good to be here and healthy. Yes. Yes. Uh, you mentioned you had been on the city council. Which ward did you represent? Uh, I represented the seventh ward, I think, where you live, in fact. Uh, Kenwood, Bryn Mawr. That's correct. Uh, included yes. uh, Linden Hills right. at that time, the Wedge. Uh, Loring Park, in fact, uh, I was on the council in the 70s when, they were, when the Loring Park Development District was just starting, so I dealt with a lot of the issues in the startup of the Loring Park uh, Development District, dealing with community issues. Neighborhood groups were just getting started, and I was so I was working with a lot of different neighborhood groups on policy issues. So that was a good experience. Yeah. And you also founded the Mileage-Based User Fee Alliance. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We, we got involved in this issue of Mileage-Based User Fees. Minnesota... Uh, started uh, thinking about this. There was a legislator, uh, Bernie Leader, uh, who was chair of the Transportation Committee, and he was a former transportation engineer uh, with MnDOT before he did that. And he became concerned that um, the gas tax was going to be a less uh, effective tool for funding transportation. In the past, it, it was a good user fee because uh, every most vehicles, all vehicles use gas, and uh, it kept track of. It was it was fairly inexpensive to collect uh, the gas tax, uh, but as fuel uh, uh, cars have become more efficient, and some vehicles uh, don't even use gasoline anymore, as in the case of electric vehicles, which is a good thing. It's it's uh, depleting the revenue source. 
or Minnesota had been looking at, and through the Humphrey School, I got involved in research related to the, to looking at the potential for a mileage-based fee, which would be uh, charged based on the number of miles that you travel. And, um, and so uh, Minnesota did that, but also um, the state of Oregon uh, started in the early 2000s, they act, interestingly enough, Oregon was the first one to have a gas tax in 1921, first state, and uh, they're, they now were the, kind of the first ones to lead on, on mileage-based fees, mm. and they've, their legislature has implemented this in kind of a preliminary way. Uh, there are some people that are paying mileage-based fees and getting reimbursed for their gas uh, usage. But then a number of other states also uh, became interested, and a group of us realized that we needed some way of explaining this to the public, to other organizations, um, and there wasn't any particular group that was uh, where this issue was kind of their primary focus. So we formed this group called the Mileage-Based User Fee Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we have our office in Washington, D.C., um, and I'm sort of one of the founding members of that. We've, it's 10 years old this year. And one of the things that's happened since that time is a federal program was created to fund pilot projects in various states. And so now there are a number of states that are doing these pilot projects. And I just learned, in fact, that uh, in the new transportation bill that's just emerging, uh, the House has kind of a reauthorization proposal that's coming forward. Uh, they include a provision in there that would double the funds uh, to fund uh, these, these future pilot projects and implement a, a national uh, pilot project. Uh, it's complicated because there are issues that you have to deal with in terms of how you collect it, how you charge. Uh, you want to make sure that it's, uh, it's fair for uh, urban and rural people. Uh, you don't want to create a disincentive for people to use electric vehicles or switch to electric vehicles, but they should be paying part of their way uh, a user fee. So, so there's a lot of complicated issues, and that's why these state projects have been sometimes referred to as laboratory of democracy, where states start it, and then when they work out the bugs, then you kind of move to a, a federal program. Federal yeah. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, there is bipartisan support for this for this pilot program. <laughs> you don't um, hear that very often. You no, know, you don't. So there are leaders in both, and, and they're saying basically the gas tax in the future isn't going to be sufficient. Mm. Uh, the other thing that uh, that is is important is is the gas tax was user based. And there is a fairly strong feeling that the transportation system should be paid for by the users of the system. I think that's going to be even more uh, significant, you know, in the future here, now that we, we have these uh, huge deficits at the federal level. State and local governments are, are, are going to be, uh, they're already uh, suffering from the effects of uh, a COVID-19 virus. Mm -hmm. And so they're... They're, they're going to be really strapped for funding. And so tapping into the general fund and competing with education, uh, health care, and other 
uh, items that are funded through, uh, through the income tax and the sales tax isn't a good idea. So you need a user-based system. And so I think, I think that this mileage-based fee is going to be uh, more common in the future. But, but transitioning to it is going to be complicated. And for a long period of time, we'll probably have uh, two systems. We'll have the gas tax and we'll have the mileage-based fee. And we'll have to work out ways of making sure that we don't double tax people or compensating mm -hmm. them if they if they pay for gas. And so it it's somewhat complicated. But there are places that have done it. Uh, New Zealand, for example, mm. uh, has implemented this with uh, with trucks that use diesel. And they're also looking at uh, doing it with electric vehicles as well. And then they have a kind of a way of balancing for those to make sure that they're that that people are paying comparable rates based on their usage. Um, and there will be kind of maybe environmental uh, incentives that would be uh, built into it as well. So uh, it's, it's a fascinating issue. It and, really is. uh, and uh, I think this has been a. Uh, been an interesting area, um, and they say it's it's, it's probably going to take some time, but I think I think we'll ultimately see moving more to a mileage-based system. I, I think I agree with you. It makes sense that as uh, more and more vehicles stop using gas, that we would have to come up with another way of paying for the infrastructure. Um, and with electric vehicles, you kind of have to look at miles. I wonder what's what how that will approach or how um, how that will affect autonomous vehicles because that's a that's a separate idea as well, isn't it? Autonomous vehicles probably run by a company. You probably yeah. have to have people who are using them pay some sort of usage fee. I, yeah. I mean, that's another ball of wax there. That's that's interesting. You bring that up because the pilot that Minnesota is actually doing now. It's being run by MnDOT, and uh, the Humphrey School is uh, is working with MnDOT on this project along with a, uh, a consulting firm. What what MnDOT has sort of recognized is that there are are three major trends that are are converging. One is autonomous vehicles. A second is shared mobility, which mm -hmm. is um, people sharing. Um, uh, vehicles, um, and we do have car-sharing companies in uh, uh, in Minnesota that people uh, people use. We also we have bike sharing, we have scooters, and yeah, we scooters. have a number of other uh, ways. And so this kind of shared mobility is uh, is seen as an increasing trend, along with autonomous vehicles, and then the convergence of those, along with uh, the potential for mileage-based fees. So. What they're looking what they're looking at is that in the future, um, we believe that a lot fewer people will actually be owning their cars. Particularly mm -hmm. when we have autonomous vehicles, there won't be a reason to own your car if you can simply call one up. Uh, and so there will be fleets of cars. The uh, car sharing companies that currently exist already have the technology in their cars for for keeping track of miles. And so what MnDOT is looking at is could we just um, uh, get the mileage information, 
preserving the privacy of the individuals who use it, uh, get the mileage information from the company, and then just uh, submit that information to the revenue department and charge them based on the miles. MnDOT is cooperating with a couple of uh, car sharing companies, not to actually charge the fee, but to see how this oh. would work uh, mm. technically. And so um, it could very well be that um, at least for fleets of vehicles, of course, there are other fleets, there are truck fleets, there are uh, uh, other private fleets that, that could be, uh, this could work with, where you already have the technology in the vehicle. Uh, the problem is, if you have to go back and retrofit vehicles with technology to collect mileage, uh, that can end up uh, costing too much and, and you kind of defeat the purpose of, of uh, collecting the revenue. So we're kind of looking to the future in that all vehicles will have this technology and that we'll have more of these uh, shared mobility vehicles. Uh, one of our, our University of Minnesota researchers did kind of a forward looking in, and uh, he suggested that by 2030, half of the vehicles would be autonomous vehicles. And by oh. 2040, um, uh, you know, over 90%. And at some point, people might not even be allowed to drive their own vehicles. <laughs> And one of the, the driving forces for autonomous vehicles is that um, uh, they're much safer than having uh, people driving them. Right. That's uh, uh, no matter what technology you put in the vehicle. There's sort of these multiple trends that are going on of uh, new technologies that are moving forward. And I think... Uh, the technology for collecting revenue is kind of moving along with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but just how how that's going to occur or how fast it's going to occur, there are obviously a lot of uh, cultural changes. And there could be a lot of benefits from autonomous vehicles where uh, you don't have to worry about having a parking space. You have yep. a, If you live in a house, you've got a garage, you could use it for something else. You could, you could simply call up a vehicle. Now, there'll be other challenges when that occurs. Uh, it's coming. It's coming. And, um, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll be seeing uh, autonomous vehicles in, in limited applications uh, for a while here and eventually will probably be more common. And it'll in, in car ownership, I think, will start to shift, too. Shift. I mean, people might buy an autonomous yeah. vehicle, but uh, uh, it's kind of a, a big investment just for, for one person person or one family you know so <laughs> yeah so you know you might have neighborhood vehicles or i don't know there could be a variety oh, of ways yeah of you know community vehicles community yeah. vehicles yeah. and and people say well you know what what happened to transit well it if you think about some of these suburban areas where you know uh people park and ride you know you, you wouldn't have to you could have vehicles going around taking people to the to the transit station so it might actually uh, encourage more people to use uh, transit systems. So presumably using autonomous vehicles, we the more and more we have of them on the road, the more we could plan the rides ahead of time, which could potentially mean that we would have less congestion. Is, is that a right. reasonable assumption that you could reduce con congestion with autonomous vehicles somehow? It, it would, although one of the things I worry about is an autonomous vehicle has to get, after it's uh, dropped off the person, it has to get to the next place. And so there will there be incentives not to have autonomous vehicles just driving around the roads? 
Uh, and this is another area that I've actually done quite a bit of work in that sort of led to this work with some, to some degree was congestion pricing. Um, you know, economists for, for years have said that the reason we have congestion on roads is that the roads aren't priced properly. So it's not just a matter of paying for the roads, but in, uh, in an urban area where you have a lot of economic activity, uh, you can have too many people using the road at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if there isn't some way of limiting people from using the roads during those peak periods, each additional car adds to the congestion and uh, for everyone else. Uh, you get to a point where the system slows down and, and, and you have kind of the gridlock situation. So economists have said if you, if you added a fee and charged a higher fee during more congested periods, some of those people would not drive during the congested period. And they found that uh, where this has been done in places like Singapore and Stockholm and uh, London, London. Yeah. London and New York uh, actually is in the process of doing this, although uh, they've been obviously uh, seriously distracted because of the COVID virus. And congestion is not a problem when we're, everybody's staying at home. <laughs> so they're not worrying about it as much. But, but they're looking at uh, if you charge a fee during the peak period, you can, if you get maybe 10% of the vehicles off the road, you can get a 33% reduction in congestion wow. uh, because of this queuing effect where each additional one kind of slows all the other vehicles down. So it could be everyone's better off, and those people, either they move to a different time frame, some of them might use transit instead, some of them may, uh, may not have even need to be traveling during that period of time, but it would be a way of, of doing that. We've studied this and we were, our, the work that we did at the Humphrey School in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s uh, led directly to the MinPass lanes that we have in Minnesota, which are on I-94, 35W, 35 North. And, and MnDOT and the Metro Council are now looking at uh, using these lanes in the future. And the way those work is, and if you're a carpooler with two or more people in it, you can, you can drive for free. Buses can use those lanes. Uh, but if you're driving alone, you can pay a fee, and that fee varies by time of day. And if you're traveling during a very congested time, you'd be paying uh, you know, a few dollars for the trip. Otherwise, uh, you might be paying 50 cents or something of that yeah. nature. And the technology works and, and people are, are using these on a regular, and they don't necessarily use them every day, but they use them uh, when they need them and it's helped with uh, congestion. It's also been a benefit to the bus system because the buses can use those lanes and, and cut down the time of their trip. You know, one thing that really makes me mad on the roads is the zipper merge. Why, why doesn't anyone <laughs> use that? I love doing the zipper, zipper merge. Yeah. I just zip on down. I'm I, at the front. I I like, and it's always empty, no matter how many signs you put up on the freeways, <laughs> no matter how much of a public service announcement you do on the radio or on TV, no one uses it. What is up with that? I've been a proponent of the zipper merge as well. I have. Oh, I you have. have. Oh, I have a zipper merge sticker that I had in my car. I still have it, uh, although it, it doesn't 
when I switched cars, I couldn't, it doesn't stay on anymore. And uh, people have asked where you can get them. MnDOT isn't making them anymore, but it says do the zipper merge. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been shown that if, you know, you kind of take turns going into lanes uh, rather than, you know, merging right away, and my wife and I always have arguments about this because her philosophy is if it says to merge, you should do it right away. And it actually works more efficiently uh, if, if, you, if both lanes of traffic go up to the point where the merge should take place and you kind of take turns merging. In, yeah. in Minnesota, uh, that's people, I think they feel guilty if they (laughs) if they go down the lane too far and then merge late and and then sometimes if you do that if you wait too long you know sometimes other cars get kind of angry and they don't want to let you in the but it's you know the traffic engineers who've done research on this have shown that you can move more efficiently uh and in work zones they uh they they encourage this uh you know as well well. but uh getting this it's a kind of a cultural thing and um and getting people to do it but um uh, my kids had a Jeopardy game for my birthday party on Zoom, and oh, yeah. uh, one of the questions was, uh, you know, the answer was zipper for zipper merge. So that <laughs> because they, I, you know, they kid me about uh, about that zipper merge. So. Well, they shouldn't kid you. It's a serious thing. <laughs> I, I'm like always looking to do the zipper merge, and honestly, I haven't had to do that in the last couple months, mostly because I've been at home and haven't been using the roads very much. Um, and well, and if you were on the roads uh, without as much traffic, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't have to do probably it Probably anyway. wouldn't have to yeah. do it anyway, yeah. I was surprised, um, I think, in the first two or three weeks. In the first, I think in the first two weeks of quarantine, of lockdown, I had an appointment I needed to go to, and so I kind of ventured out. And I used 35W to, to get to my appointment, and I was shocked at how empty the the freeway was. Uh, I I think this whole lockdown and quarantine and having everyone working from home has really affected the amount of use of our traffic infrastructure. And I know the article I mentioned earlier said that there would be ripples in Minnesota um, kind of as a result of this. And I'm sure ripples all over the, the nation in each of our respective states. But I would contend that Perhaps they're they're waves, not ripples. Um, but I, I guess I would want to hear from you. How how has work from home affected the the transportation system and other things around that are related? Actually, related to our congestion pricing work, we we got involved in the issue of telework. Minnesota won a federal grant uh, to implement congestion pricing on 35W in 2008. Uh, and it was the the federal government at that time was encouraging states to uh, to implement congestion pricing projects, and so they they gave them funding for that. But they combined the funding with funding for transit on 35W when they did this project, which I think opened in 2010. They made a number of transit improvements at the same time. Uh, that doesn't usually happen. So actually, most of the funds went to Metro Transit to make transit improvements on 35W. Mm-hmm. They set, used some of it for park and rides, and they improved the express uh, uh, service uh, and did a number of other changes along with uh, adding the MinPass lane on 35W. In uh, using technology, they introduced a new type of a lane in 35W where they took the 
the inside um, uh, shoulder lane and converted that into a min-pass lane. And so that, that's been in existence now since uh, for 10 years. Uh, but as part of that federal grant, uh, Minnesota included in their uh, proposal, uh, uh, the federal government said you could also include telework. So they included uh, telework uh, as, a, as another strategy. And MnDOT has been interested in this for some time because one of the ways you can reduce congestion and reduce uh, the cost of, of funding the road system is if people work from home. Uh, and that could happen in a number of different ways. It could be that you could, um, you, you could work for a couple hours in the morning and then go in midday and you know meet with your colleagues. Uh, time shift, time shift, so that not everybody's traveling at the same time. Um, and so, what the Humphrey School did with this, and, and, and we created a, a program called eWorkplace MN, and it gives you a lot of information about uh, working at home. So, what we did in this project was we worked with uh, the Met Council and traffic management uh, groups in uh, in the Twin Cities area. And, and with employers to explore whether the telework might, might occur, and particularly in this 35W corridor. What we found is that, and this is not just our research but others, is that uh, most people would like to work at home if their job allowed them to do it. There are also indications that uh, people who work at home quite frequently can be more productive. Uh, plus, they save the time of the trip or being in congestion. If you're, you're, you have a half-hour trip to and from work, uh, you can save an hour a day, which can either be, uh, you know, go to your work or your leisure time or that sort of a thing. So we knew all that. But uh, what we found was that employers were reluctant to do it. Mm. You know, there's still this sort of culture within many companies that if the employees have to be there in order to do the work. But a lot more work can be done online, and the e-workplace program kind of ended about, you know, uh, a year and a half ago, uh, although we maintained the website. But there's now been interest uh, by some legislators and MnDOT and maybe uh, restarting that e-workplace program. Now comes along the coronavirus, and suddenly uh, many of us are being forced to work at home. Mm -hmm. You know, if we if we're in one of those jobs where you can work at home, um, you know, obviously uh, there are a lot of jobs like restaurants and hotels and hospitals, medical, yeah, construction. You know, things that that that, that you can't you can't work at home. But there's an awful lot of jobs where you can do uh, you can work at home or at least do part of the the work at home. So, for example, at the University of Minnesota, you know, we've had a woman that's been working with faculty to try to do distance learning, and we've had a couple of faculty members that have done it. But it's been hard to get uh, faculty to change their you know, their practices from, from teaching in a classroom to teaching online. All of a sudden, uh, the whole University of Minnesota is online. So yeah. um, there's no options. Know, there's no options. And yeah. uh, the university had uh, implemented Zoom about a year ago. And so, uh, you know, a lot of us were using Zoom uh, for meetings and occasionally all of a sudden, Everybody's using Zoom and classes are being done on Zoom. And so uh, so it, it, it's, you know, 
we've been forced into doing this and people are realizing that there's still something about being able to teach students in a classroom that, that I think uh, is important. But an awful lot of teaching can occur uh, online. Mm -hmm. And of course, there have been people, a lot of people who have gotten on online degrees, people who have you know, been in more remote locations that have been able to make use of it. So it's not a new thing, but telework has, or has, has taken off uh, a lot more. And, uh, uh, and we're learning how to do it. And employers are figuring out, um, you know, I, I think are, are more accepting of it. So how much of this, how much after this is over, when, whenever we're not sheltering at home uh, in the future, uh, you know, I think there, there's going to be a permanent shift to some degree. I think there will, will people will be going back to workplaces again, but maybe, maybe not as much. And maybe um, uh, there might be some impact on on congestion as well as overall travel uh, when this when this occurs. We'll see. You've said before that employers now have to think differently to plan their work differently. And you've said that a lot of them are finding that allowing employees to work from home can be very productive. Have there been any studies that show this? I, mean, I know that it's um, early on here, but I, I, want, I wonder if, the, if employers are actually going to be okay with people working from home when they don't have to have them work from home. We did some surveys. Uh, this latest situation is so new that, you know, it, it's probably going to take some time before we have have uh, a lot of evidence to be able to show this. And these were kind of like pilot projects. Hennepin County was, for example, involved in this. They have a lot of employees, and they, they were interested in working from home. Uh, Best Buy at, at one point had a fairly significant work at home program, although they backed off on it somewhat. But uh, they have found that, you know, at least in these programs, and it, it, it's not, you don't just all of a sudden send people home and say you're working at home. I mean, there needs to be a plan. You have to, you have to have ways, other ways of sort of measuring work. I mean, the, the way a lot of times we do it is, is we look and see if people are in the office. Uh, but what are they doing? Are they, you know, are they productive there? Are they working? Yeah, are they productive? Yeah. Uh, and they've actually found that productivity has increased. And what employers have to do is they have to have sort of good measures of work product that whatever your job is, um, you know, you pre presumably have to produce a certain number of uh products or services during the during the day and uh, and so keeping track of all of that and with uh, the technology and the tools and the software that's available there's a lot more tools so that you can keep track of that that work at home there's some assumption that that people uh, are just gonna loaf around and not work but people actually I think want to work. <laughs> You know, people, yeah. people work is, is part of what we do. And so, uh, you know, you're if you're told you're going to work at home, you're not, you know, you're not going to necessarily just go home and and sit there and collect a paycheck. You're going to you're going to do the job that you've been and, and you want to um, 
you know, you'll interact with your employees in different ways, you know, through Zoom meetings. Uh, but you'll, you'll have products and you'll have things that, that, that get done. And, you know, with the gig economy, we're, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of people in the software business are, you know, have been working at home uh, for a long period of time and more, uh, you know, they, if they've got the right technology there, uh, they can do that. Studies have shown that, that when, when people start working at home, that they, they actually are, can be more productive. Plus, as I say, you save that travel time, you know, you, you yes. can go from one Zoom meeting to another, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could, if you're dealing with clients, uh, you know, you schedule your appointment. Um, the technology's got to work, you know, so yes, like our, we had a little problems uh, kind of getting that set up here today. But once you've got it arranged, um, uh, a lot of the tools are fairly, fairly easy to use. Yeah. And if you're doing it over and over again, you know, you get very good at using those online tools. Sure. Yeah. And you also are nicer to the environment. I mean, more people are at home, less people are out burning gas, using the infrastructure, less, less green, greenhouse emissions yeah. that are going yeah. into the air. So they, even that's a, a benefit as well. Yeah. And maybe they're doing a different type of travel. There, there have been studies that have shown that that people tend to travel the same amount, going back to like Roman times that, that people, uh, when they walked, uh, you know, they would spend a certain amount of time every day. They call it a travel time budget. And that people, people travel is something that people like to do. So, um, you know, I've been out uh, walking every day, uh, you know, social distancing, but I, I don't want to just sit at home all the time. And so uh, so I, I go out walking. And so that's a that's a, uh, a good form of travel. It's healthy and it's good for the environment. The, the, the one thing is, is humans are very social animals and uh, we need to be able to socialize with other with others, whether it's in a work environment. And, and that's one of the I think the hard things for a lot of people uh, in this is that, you know, they can't go and sit in the coffee shop, uh, you know, or go to a bar and have a happy hour. Um, but, um, you know, our condo has been doing happy hours every Friday on Zoom. So <laughs> you could do that. You drink, drink with your friends online. Drink with your friends, and we talk <laughs> and we have conversations. We we had a pretty serious discussion at our last one about the events of this this last week with uh, the death of, of George, George Floyd, Floyd. and yeah. uh, and uh, we all as as Minnesotans, we in Minneapolis, we all feel sort of a sense of frustration and shame, I think, for mm -hmm. that this, this could happen, that this could happen today. And so, so we, we did a Zoom meeting where we, we said, we put everybody on mute and said, okay, one at a time, uh, each one of you tell us what you think, uh, what you've been thinking about. And, um, you know, it was, it was really good because, like I say, we are social beings. We need to, we need to kind of talk about these things mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and figure out what what we can do, what 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 needs to happen. So, so that's that's a part of it as well. And I think that we're 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 all learning something in this period. And hopefully, we when we come out of our health virus and our society virus, um, that 
that that that will make will figure out how to make things better, and that maybe people will be better. That's that's at least the hope. So that's the hope. Absolutely, we want to make the world a better place um, for our children, for their children, and um, we need to we absolutely take the the work that's been done over the last week or so with the response to these to the death and build on it and not let it become something that just gets forgotten about because that's happened so many times and I don't think we can as humanity allow us to to for that to happen again. We we need to build on on the work that's been done. I agree completely. Yeah. You mentioned Electric scooters a little while ago, and I, I'm not going to keep you any longer here, but I do want to. I do want to ask you about your thoughts because the electric scooter companies want us to believe that they are better for the environment, and that if you're using one of them, you're not using a car, um, you're not using gas that might be going into a bus, um, and to a certain extent, that superficially sounds accurate, but when you when you look at it, there's a number of articles and some studies that have been published that, uh, well, I think one in The Guardian, that showed that actually the effect on the environment isn't really that great because of the, I guess, because of the need to pick up the scooters and to charge them and to have cars doing that. What are your thoughts on the future of electric scooters and, and kind of what what um, part of our transportation system that they actually should have or, or should not have. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, I think the, the book is still out on electric scooters. I think they do serve a useful purpose for, so for example, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you use transit, but you're not close to where you want to be, you can get off the bus and get on a scooter and it'll get you to a location a little faster. What I've seen is they seem to be used a lot for recreational purposes. I live near the Stone Arch Bridge, and we see a lot of people just kind of riding around in scooters. So, you know, there's something uh, to be said to, you know, uh, to kind of supplement walking to be able to, to get to one place faster than another. I do worry uh, about the safety, however. Uh, they, people should be wearing helmets, but very few people do wear helmets mm -hmm. with scooters, mm -hmm. uh, just as they should be wearing on bicycles and motorcycles, which are probably the most dangerous way. Uh, and of course, we uh, we don't uh, we don't have uh, a law that requires uh, helmets. But so That's so there is a amazing. there is with with motorcycles, bicycles, and scooters. You can you know uh, you should be wearing a helmet and. and and people quite frequently don't, uh, or most of the time they don't on scooters. So I worry about the safety issue. They do kind of fill uh, a gap, you know. There, it, 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 to the extent that uh, it gives you another transportation alternative that doesn't require having a, owning your own car. You know, I think there may be some benefit from it, but. Um, uh, you know, I uh, and I haven't really done research in this particular area. Somehow or another, I've avoided dealing with scooters. <laughs> they do come under this umbrella of shared mobility, and uh, so you know we're certainly aware of them, and we're we're aware of the companies. You know, I think bike sharing has been very successful uh, in uh, in the Twin Cities area and elsewhere. 
companies are now starting to offer electric bikes, which allow you to maybe go some places that might be, uh, unless you're a, a you know, a, a confirmed bicyclist, uh, you know, it, it may be, uh, it, it, it may be hard to bike everywhere you want with electric bikes. Uh, I see electric bikes as maybe kind of filling a gap here. Like I said, I think the book's still open on this and I haven't done uh, uh, research on, you know, what are the overall environmental effects of, of scooters. Obviously there are costs to how you run such a system and how you move them around and I know that uh, our bike sharing, we've gone away from the, the dockless bike sharing in Minnesota uh, in part because of the, uh, the cost of having to go around and pick up bikes and move them around. And so, uh, it, it, and this is part of the problem with scooters too. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, we're still, this is kind of a transitional thing. Uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll see how it works. You know, we have a company down by the river here that uses Segways to take people on tours. Uh, Segways at one point were supposed to be a big solution, and they're, they have kind of a niche now, I guess, for uh, people that want to uh, do walking tours where the distance is a little bit long, so they, they use Segways for that. But I've, uh, I've done those. Have you? Yes. It's yeah. just gorgeous. It's such a great way to get around and to see a place quickly. Yeah, and uh, they train everyone and they yes. give you a helmet. And yep. uh, so it's, uh, anyway. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate the time you've spent with us today. Um, it's been such a wonder talking to you and learning about the transportation system and your history and your thoughts on the um, on the whole thing. I So thank you very much. Good. It was a lot of fun. Lee Monique Jr., a senior fellow, and also directed the state and local policy program at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota for 25 years. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you do have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegic. Thank you for listening.